Good morning. This is the Davis Vanguard podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald, and today we are talking with a couple of the leaders from ASUCD. We got Adam Hatafi and Francois Kaplan. So welcome, guys. Thanks, David. Thank you. All right. So we got a bunch of issues we want to talk about uh, involving the UC. So I think uh, one of the more controversial issues that has come up has been the UC path. So can you explain what that is and why it's a problem? So UC path is a payroll system that the UC introduced about a short time ago uh, to be the one payroll system to rule all the different 11 different payroll systems that were out there. Um, it was supposed to save the regions around $100 million all the campuses that it has already been introduced in, the results have always been disastrous. People have been affected by pay cuts or people have been paid uh, with pay discrepancies. It's it's really just a, a disaster. Yeah, so the uh, UC PATH system was uh, introduced by the UC Office of the President uh, back before summer. Um, uh, it has been in the working. They've been working on this for years now, and they introduced it before they started implementing it before this summer, this past summer. And uh, in the first couple of campuses to to have it have it implemented were, well, they did so voluntarily. They signed up to be uh, the first campuses to do this, um, and there needed to be a pilot in a couple of campuses just to see how it would work. The result of that was uh, hundreds of students not receiving their paychecks delays in onboarding. Everybody who was already onboarded into the system needed to be onboarded into the, into the new system all over again. And there were only a few people on each campus who knew how to work the system. So um, there were delays in checks. People were not paid for months at a time. Um, and then afterwards, uh, many, many UCs, including Davis, refused to voluntarily transition because they said, work out the kinks first, and then we can talk. Uh, about transitioning. Uh, and that was the point at which uh, the Office of the President made it mandatory for the for the uh, campuses to transition to UC Path. It became compulsory for our campus, for example, to transition to UC Path. And as a result of that, since we've had students who didn't get paid from May of last school year to October, and even now, uh, students who are still not getting paid, who haven't been paid for months, um, and students have reacted to that in multiple ways. There was a strike, and we'll talk about those uh, later on. So how do students even live if they're not getting paid? So there were multiple interim solutions offered. Uh, emergency loans were extended in both deadline and amount. Uh, and that was a... Like, some students are not able to live. There are students who've uh, been assessed credit. There are students who are putting their rents on their credits and they're getting credit fees as a result. There are students who are getting late fees as a result of not uh, being able to make their rent payments on time. And uh, there are students who have to ask their parents for help, who have to ask uh, others for help. And there are students who can't do that, who don't have that resource available, who don't, who are non-traditional students or who don't have a relationship with their parents and can't ask for that kind of help. Um, and I'm sure there have been students at this point who have had to uh, couch surf or in some way um, move out of their their place, their dwelling place, because they can't pay for the rent. So is UC Davis admitting fault here, or th and what are they doing about this? 
Yeah. Um, as far as UC Davis is concerned, they're not going to admit fault because they're just blaming the UC office of the president for even like forcing them to go to UC path. And they're not willing to take responsibility for the actual implementation of UC path in UC Davis because someone uh, in particular in the administration made the decision to implement UC path in such a way that the people in charge, at least for the campus side of it, is like they're going to delegate to an office that's already overworked and already understaffed. So the details of that is that uh, the, when, when, when UC Path is presented to each campus, the campus has a choice. They can either, either have a decentralized system like we had in the past and train each department's payroll personnel to uh, work with UC Path, or they can create a centralized office and do all the onboarding and payroll through that office. UC Davis went with a second option because training that many staff and that many people would take time and money, and they didn't want to do it. Um, this decision was made by the Vice Chancellor for Finance Operations, Finance and Operations, uh, Kelly Ratcliffe, and the result of that decision was that there were like seven people trying to implement a payroll for thousands and thousands of employees. I don't know if it's seven people. That number might be too small or too big, but... Um, my point is that there was a small group of individuals who were suddenly in charge of implementing payroll and onboarding for 11 different departments. So basically this is penny wise, pound foolish. Yeah. Yeah. I would say. I mean, they're trying to save money on, on the front end and it creates a disaster that's going to probably end up costing them a lot more in the long run. Look, the, I understand the uh, the uh, mindset of the office of the president. That is, we need to save money so we can have better operations, so we can spend that money elsewhere. That's understandable. But the fact of the matter is that their job is not to save money blindly, but to save money in order to serve the students and the faculty of the University of California better. And that's not what they're doing. If the If the cost of saving that money is that students will suffer, is that staff will suffer, then that money is not worth saving. Well, I also think it, it's understandable, at least at the outset, that you you try to implement something that you think is going to save money. But then the question is, okay, what is the fail-safe if everything goes wrong with the system and it doesn't seem like they have one? So in UCLA, they do have a fail-safe, kind of. Um, it's kind of uh, reparations in a way. So the way that they did it in UCLA was that if you weren't paid in, because of UC Path, you know, anytime like under a month you get $150 on top of the pay you're supposed to earn uh any any time over a month and that's 450 now for our situation because our um pay has been delayed for so long now we're talking about you know two year uh two months three months four months i mean 20 percent of unitrans drivers haven't been paid since august is how bad it is uh, and yet the UC Davis administration is actually refusing to pay our uh, ACD employees like reparations like that because apparently they need to collect more data. They're refusing to commit to a, to a course of action, uh, any course of action. They're, they're just refusing to say, here's how we're going to fix it. Uh, they're throwing out suggestions there, but I feel like they should have, knowing that this had happened on other campuses, they should have been prepared for this, and they weren't. Wow, that's incredible. All right, um, so let's talk about the strike. Uh, you go ahead. 
Yes. So because in the contracts that each coffee house, so this is the coffee house in UC Davis, because each coffee wor uh, house worker has to sign a contract that says you cannot strike, um, they had to do what's called a walkout. Uh, it's it's one uh, way to kind of get around the idea of a strike because it's not the same, but it's a walkout nonetheless. So they, so like I think it was about, about 100, 200 coffee house workers. They all marched down to Merak Hall, and they all just like, you know, they were there. They were protesting. They were chanting. You know, asking for the chancellor to come down from his fifth floor office, his little you know nice little big corner office. And so Kelly Ratliff, the vice chancellor for finance operation administration, and I believe Emily Galindo were there like trying to like calm everybody down. But unfortunately, the way they were doing it actually made everybody more angry um, because they were starting to like snap, uh, be super snappy. Uh, so, so it turns out the chancellor was, I believe, in Sacramento at the time. Yes. So the chancellor at the time was in the Sacramento airport. Uh, he, I messaged him and he messaged me back that he was in Sacramento airport between flights at the moment uh, and that he couldn't be there or, if he, or he would if he could. Uh, I posted that message on Facebook with his permission. Uh, but the, 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 the fact of the matter is that, um, again, the, the strike happened because we know at least 77 Coho employees haven't been paid. Now, the, the, the ridiculous part of the situation is that the coffee house is a unit of ASUCD. It works under our... Uh, department. The money is in our account, right? The money is there. The people who cut the checks are sitting in our uh, uh, headquarters, in our in our uh, office, in our finance office. Everything, the paper is in the printer, but but they can't print out these checks and send them out because UC Path and because our campus decided to do a centralized system. We're just sitting there. Uh, unable to, uh, to cut these checks, even though the money's there, the paper's there, and the printer's there, and so are the people who do the job. It, it, it's kind of absurd that we can't pay these people even though we don't have a problem. That was kind of the word that popped into my head. This whole thing is absurd. How, how does this happen in 2019? Um, that's a very good question. Um, Look, there are students who've threatened legal action. There are students who've threatened uh, action through the Labor Department or through the California Labor Department. Um, this, the, the fact that this has happened, the fact that this happened when the UC had the foresight to know it was going to, because it happened in the first two campuses, right? That at, by the third one, they knew this was going to happen. Uh, and uh, yeah, so if you want to talk about AP. So, um because of the failures, I think it was the first two campuses it was, uh, the legislature actually introduced and passed SB 698, uh, which basically required the UC to pay its employees according to UC policy. Basically what was happening in the law was that the UC was actually given an exemption um, from paying the workers until SB 698 came along. Well, they had an exemption from paying their workers on time, right? They were not, uh, they, they did not have the same penalties as everybody else did in terms of late payments. Uh, there has been before, as Emily Galindo said, there has been there have been cases where people have been paid the wrong way or late or whatever, UC's a large operation, and they have this exemption in the law because they're a large independent operation. However, um, they no longer do because Connie Leva was like, yeah, no, we're not doing this anymore because you know the two campuses already did this and it was a massive failure. 
Yeah, uh, and so the, the big problem for us is that even though this bill is passed, it's not actually effective until January 1st, 2020. So that means we can't like sue them because as far as we're concerned, they're still given that exemption. You know, it was like, there's nothing we can do besides, you know, file reports with the Labor Commission. I mean, they've got 30, 30 and something more days to fix this thing or the law will kick in and then I don't know what's gonna, how it's going to go after that. <laughs> so tell us about the meeting with uh, Kelly Radcliffe. So I was in the in that meeting for about 20 minutes. It was an hour-long meeting. Uh, but um, the, 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 the gist of what happened in that meeting was that we sat down with myself, uh, Justin Hurst, the president of ACCD, and Shredish Pandey, the internal vice president. Uh, we sat down with uh, Kelly Ratcliffe, Emily Galindo. Those are the vice chancellors for finance and operation and uh, student affairs. Uh, Sherry Atkinson, who's the associate vice chancellor for student affairs, and uh, Corey Vu, uh, who's the associate vice chancellor for um, what's his title again? Uh, who's Corey Vu's title? Divisional affairs. Divisional affairs. Um, and we all got in a room and we talked about UC Path as a result of that strike, uh, because in that strike, they in order to placate the people who were striking, they committed to a meeting with the leadership of ACCD. So we sat down and we talked. And what what we got out of those talks was that. They were unwilling to give ASCCD's ability to cut its own che checks back to ASCCD. Uh, that they were uh, had unwilling to commit to a course of action that involved uh, reparations or uh, any kind of um, extra pay for students who hadn't gotten paid. And that they were unwilling to commit to a course of action at all, except for what they were already doing, which was onboarding people as fast as possible. Um, they... Uh, they talked about uh, how they talked about the UCLA case, uh, and they talked about the reasoning behind their decision to have a centralized authority. But uh, at the end of the day, they were unwilling to commit to anything, as far as we were concerned. And I believe you have notes on that on that meeting. Yes. Yeah, so I was actually talking to Justin about what happened in the second half of the meeting, and according to him, this is actually how it went. So Shreya, again, our vice president, uh, internal vice president. Um, was actually asking about reparations for our for the at least for the workers who were impacted because it wasn't just a city workers who were impacted it was also graduate student TAs uh, about forty of them actually um, but the response that Kelly gave us was like well you know we need to collect more data before getting that compensation however I don't really know how much time they would need to get that this data anyways um, and so Kevin our controller or CFO and COO for all intents and purposes. Uh, he he actually asked, could you extend oh, could you extend the time um, for so basically what happens in UC Path is that if you aren't paid for 90 consecutive days, you get booted off the system. And that's actually what happened to me. Um, so actually I wasn't getting paid for like 14 weeks. Uh, and then eventually they paid me. But but could but could you um, extend that 90 day period to like 120 days because summer, at least for UC Davis students, lasts for about 112 days. And 90 and being paid 90 consecutive days means that a lot of student workers are gonna get booted off before the school year begins. And so the response to that was like, oh yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll take a look into that. It's a quick, easy fix. It's just a variable, you just change a variable. 
Yeah, and the fact that that wasn't something they thought of uh, to begin with, uh, like if it's that simple of a fix, how did you not think of this before you implemented it? How did you not think, oh, summer's 112 days and people are not going to be here for that and not going to be able to work for it? It's one of those, how is this a complex, complicated thing at all uh, situations? Um, yeah. Sounds like we need to talk to UC Davis about this. I would recommend that you do. I imagine their attitude will will will, will be very different than our attitude. Um, their 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 response is going to be, "Oh, we're doing everything we can to fix it." The fact of the fact of the matter is that they didn't do everything they can to prevent it. Uh, the fixing it is one thing; preventing it was the more important thing. Understood. All right. Um, let's move on then. Uh, I wanted to get kind of your thoughts on the city of davis's decision to go with five districts for their district election um overall thoughts on the process and the outcome so for me it was kind of expected but disappointing that the city council went with five districts instead of seven districts um, in particular i'm particularly disappointed in gloria Pardita because she said the reason why she's going with five and not seven is because in the seven district model, uh, the, Lati the Latino uh, proportion in, that in those districts were like not a majority. And so therefore Latino vo uh, voices were never gonna be heard on the council, which I vehemently disagree with because like, first of all, Davis is like 14% Latino uh, according to the uh, 2010 census uh, numbers. So it, and the actual like districts had like 11%. So it's like, that's like such a weak argument to go for five instead of seven. And especially if seven districts would actually mean more minority representation on the council, yet think that you might actually want to go for seven instead. But I mean, the, the map that they did choose for district five was actually pretty good. I think considering that I believe district two had about 70% 77% of that district were renters, which I'm particularly pleased with, uh, which means that, you know, if students actually organize enough, they might actually get a student on the council. Um, yeah, the, the argument that uh, the Latino numbers were smaller in uh, seven districts was kind of arbitrary. Um, uh, I could say that. The other thing is, because uh, such a large portion, uh, like there is the, a large portion of the, uh, of the Latino population in Davis are students, and students don't, live in one place right that might be the case today it might have been the case two years ago that those districts had a lower latino population but it might not be the case in two, two years from now because students by nature don't live in one place the, the makeup of the student body changes on a regular basis and every year every new class that comes in ends up choosing different uh, apartments and different rental properties to live in uh, it, it doesn't always end up having the same, uh, even though they're all going to be renters, uh, th it doesn't always end up being the same uh, racial or ethnical makeup in every in every area uh, because of the nature of renters and students. Um, so that was kind of uh, that was kind of an arbitrary argument. But the other thing is uh, seven districts would have uh, the, the seven two seven district maps that we uh, student body officially uh, supported. Uh, were would, would have had uh, two districts with a uh, high percentage of renters and that would have guaranteed a, 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 a considering what how big of a population of these are renters um, that would have guaranteed uh, seats for renters on the council the 
issue being that renters vote at a much lower rate than homeowners. Um, however, they went with a five district five five dis- uh, district map that is going to prove challenging in the future elections. Uh, and when when we consider the fact that the the number one issue in the city of Davis for uh, students and renters at least is housing and the lack of housing and the uh, expense and uh, expensiveness of housing. Um, that decision uh, and the, the the resulting makeup of the city council is going to very much affect uh, that number one issue. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that turns out. I will say that there will be another districting in a few months after the 2020 census. Um, so it, this we'll see how the result what the results of this this districting is and then based on that we can go forward with the next districting that however might prove difficult depending on how the council gets what council we end up with well there are several different issues so the first one is what the districts look like the second one was 5 versus 7 the problem with going with the decision to make it 5 is that now the only way to change it to seven is to go to the voters and the voters have to approve it. So that makes it a much more difficult process. Second point is, and this gets to your point, um, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens because when Lincoln 40 gets built out and when uh, Nishi gets built out, you know, that's about 3,000 more students right in an area that's likely to be in the same district as each other. And so that could become a very powerful voting block. But, of course, the only way that students are going to get elected to anything is if they organize and come out to vote. And as we know, even from the last election, that really didn't happen. Uh, My biggest concern was that when you go from five to seven, um, or from seven back to five, you end up losing the opportunity for a minority majority district. And yeah, it's, you know, it, it's going to be a much less Hispanic than Asian. And you can argue whether or not Asian voters and Hispanic voters are on the same, same wavelength, but you, you're going to end up with districts that are less than 50% white. And that's going to change the nature of how elections work um, in, a, in a way that, is much less likely to occur now. So those are kind of my thoughts. And again, this comes down to, uh, I absolutely agree with everything you just said, but at the end of the day, it does come down to the rate at which people vote, right? Homeowners vote at a much higher rate and homeowners are, have a much, much lower rate of being minorities of any kind in in Davis. Um, the, The, that is always going to be that. That is the case at the moment. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And I think the fact that homeowners vote more, more often and more uh, widely than renters, uh, is going to be the, the what determines the result of the election. We need to uh, go on to another issue. Um, the issue of student loan forgiveness has come up. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So there are two sides to student loan forgiveness and student debt cancellation and any kind of student loan reform. There's the state side and there's the federal side, right? Um, the federal side is going to be the forgiveness of existing debt. Many of, uh, most of student debt as it exists today, at least in public institutions like UC Davis, is um, subsidized federal loans. 
these loans are with the with the federal governments or uh, private par- private partners of the federal government and the federal government can forgive these loans right it's not a complex uh, appropriations issue they can forgive these loans as they stand today um this the other issue is the regulation of the private market and ensuring that uh, students who take private loans don't don't end up in any kind of uh scam or trap or get get locked into an endless cycle of debt now um one again one side of this is forgiving existing debt that's a federal issue the state can't really do much about that what the state can do is increase financial aid to prevent future taking out of loans but um this comes down the 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 issue of debt forgiveness and uh, uh the issue of debt forgiveness and getting rid of existing debt all will always come down to the federal government that's where the loans are that's where the that's where the that's the body that the loans are with, and those are the people who are going to decide whether that those, that debt is going to stay as it is. Um, on the state side, uh, what the state can do is try to increase financial aid, which we're actively working on. Right, uh, we're trying to get uh, a summer Cal grant to, uh, to, uh, to pass. We're trying to increase the budget that goes to financial aid, uh, increase the budget that goes to students, all of that, and that's great. But what the state can do primarily in the in the in the, in the field of loans directly is regulating the private market of student loans in the state of California. And that's something that's already started. Senator Allen introduced a bill last year that passed that uh, was called the student, uh, the, what was it called? The uh, student, the student loan bill of rights, something like that. Um, something of, of that, it had bill of rights in it. Um, and what it did was it laid out a, ser- a set of rights and uh, pr- rights and privileges for people who were taking out student loans. Uh, a set of regulations on private uh, debtors and people who give out those loans um, and uh, basically created avenues for students who are taking out student loans to um, ensure that they're not getting uh, getting trapped in a cycle of debt, that they're not uh, getting loans that are higher than a, like, you know, a reasonable interest rate. And that's great. That's a great first step for the state to make, right? The bulk of our advocacy when it comes to student debt forgiveness will have to be on the federal level because those are again those are the people who this decision comes down to um student housing issues how how's housing looking so um so one of the people who we work with don gibson is actually working on the renters rights ordinance which has actually come up in city council in uh, recent meetings uh, so we have an existing renters rights ordinance which uh, is to put it most kindly rather weak um it sets out a, a set of rights and uh, for, for for renters all of that but the issue is Enforcing those rights and enforcing the regulations that the renters' rights ordinance puts out is uh, an issue. There is one part-time staffer who's working on 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 overseeing the implementation of this. Uh, the way fees are collected from uh, properties is um, a problem, right? It's something like a hundred bucks for for per, per property, something like that. It's it's very poorly designed, um, and the. The inspections, the are there? I don't even know if there are inspections, and if there are, they're not often enough. The new proposal that we saw in the city council, I think you have the, do you have the new the new proposal or? All I have here is a staff report that I just pulled up that uh, 
uh, it actually got released on the 19th, uh, November 19th. Basically, it just says that housing in Davis has become so bad that state and local laws might actually be violated. Uh, yeah, so we've had an issue with, so uh, let me get through what the, the new ordinance, actually, the new proposals to the state, the new uh, proposals are to change the uh, renters' right ordinance. Um, the increase of the frequency of inspections uh, to um, single house, single family houses who are renting out. Um, they are inc they are proposing to increase funding. Uh, there were a lot of suggestions in city council from the public and our, us as ASUCD on how to make that better. You know, expand those ex inspections to uh, large complexes. All of that. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see how the city council proceeds with this. Uh, my hope is that they create a much stronger uh, body of rules and a much more effective and efficient system of enforcement and inspection uh, to make sure that renters are not being uh, abused or taken advantage of in any way. Um, now, that's renters' rights ordinance is a part of it. There are other issues in housing, right? What you brought up, what Francois brought up on the matter of state and local laws, there are state laws regarding the uh, duty of a municipality to absorb a certain amount of growth, uh, I wouldn't say Davis has been has been absorbing any kind of growth, uh, and if it has, it hasn't been very effective. Um, now that's a matter for lawyers to decide, but there is a good chance we're 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 on violation of on our on our um, uh, growth rates. Uh, and uh, from what Governor Newsom has said, he's he's uh, his administration is going to want to enforce those uh, um, regulations, which is something that Jerry Brown's administration didn't do that uh, that that strongly. So it's going to it's going to be very interesting to see how that turns out. Um, they're also, uh, uh, from what I understand, we have local, uh, agreements with the county, uh, on growth. We have, and with other cities in this, in this area on, uh, how much of the growth of the county each city is going to absorb all those agreements. Uh, it, it's, it's a complex legal, uh, uh, web of agreements that considering how little we have, we have grown, grown in housing, um, I would say there's a good chance we've violated some of them and that that staff report is going to say the same thing. So actually, I don't, I don't know. Have you mentioned the fact that uh, the renter's rights ordinance uh, is only being enforced in the city by like a part-time staffer? Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, and so I was like, I was just reading through the staff report real quick and they were saying that because uh, housing in Davis has become so overcrowded, so like, I don't know, it's like poorly maintained, um, Basically, what they were doing is just like, yeah, it's, it's just violating a bunch of local and state laws. And I think that the issue with that it actually comes from the fact that we do have um, uh, re like really stringent uh, laws on building housing in the city. And not to mention the fact that there are people in the city who tend to abuse CEQA uh, just to oppose any and all housing that comes along, e even if... Uh, and actually, I think as the as the mayor said, even if the will of the people voted for the housing project to be built, people in the city will literally go against the will of the people just to oppose a project that they don't like. Yeah. So the the for those who don't know, uh, CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act and California Environmental Quality Act. I said that a little too fast, um, and it provides for. Uh, the option for citizens of a locality to sue uh, the local government or agency that approves the environmental impact report written on a certain project uh, and uh, challenge its validity in court. That's great. Here's the problem. They can do so without disclosing their funding, disclosing the actual person who's backing that suit, 
um, or without any kind of actual grounds that this thing is is is, is in any way invalid. Um, those lawsuits drag on, even though they're somewhat accelerated for student housing projects, they're dragged on for at least a year, sometimes more. Uh, I believe Nishi and Lincoln 40, the lawsuits lasted about 16 months. Um, and even though these lawsuits get th thrown out in Davis, pr predominantly they get thrown out, they waste enough time that uh, the problem of uh, our vacancy rate and our, house and our housing availability rate is never going to get fixed because these things just keep dragging on and dragging on and we grow more and more without having more and more housing and so we're stuck. Yeah, and I think one of the big problems is we've approved about 4,000 beds in Davis and there's another 9,000 or something like that uh, slated for UC Davis, but none of this has actually come online yet. Uh, we have Sterling, which is probably going to open in the fall, um you know modest size uh but but the big stuff has been delayed lincoln 40 was delayed uh by litigation uh that's about 800 beds and then nishi um they they just uh won their lawsuit but we have to wait to see if they're going to appeal or not um and, and and so we're now looking at 2022 maybe 2023 before 3,000 or so of those beds are going to come online. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, we've, we've done our job on the front end, but, uh, but that doesn't mean the students are actually going to get to move into anything anytime soon. Yeah, and the, uh, the problem with that is that because it's taking those projects so long to come on board, by the time they do come on board, they're not actually going to solve anything, right? They're just going to uh, take the, like, they're, they're going to be scribbling at the edges of the problem by that point. Because, we need those 3,000 units today, not three years from now, to meet the demand issues that we're having. If it comes online then, we are going to have much bigger demand issues at that point, right? Um, and that's going to be that. That's going to continue to be a huge problem for the city. Uh, I think our uh, controller Kevin Rodenkolber found a number. Uh, I, I, I'm fairly certain it was him uh, who found a number that something like six percent of sequel lawsuits, uh, the secondary challenges are filed in Yolo County. That's absurd. Well, actually, it's Davis. Just Davis, it's just the city of Davis. Oh, like the address on the, oh, wow. Yeah, so that's, um, there are like 60,000 people live in the city of Davis, right? That's not even like 0.6% of the California population. That's 40 million people live in the state. The, the fact that 6% of all these lawsuits coming from this area is mind blowing. It's, I don't know how that's even possible. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy well we are out of time i want to thank adam and francois for coming on the show thank you david for having us and uh we'll be back uh hopefully sometime in december and talk some more about what's happening at uc davis absolutely absolutely